It's good to be with you this morning. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you have a good week. You know, not too long ago in our country, it seemed like everyone, whether they wanted to or not, uh, went to church on a Sunday morning. And as a result, many American children have learned the great Bible stories that are in the scriptures. They can You know, many American children from past generations were able to tell you the story about Noah and the flood or Daniel in the lion's den or Moses in the Red Sea. But times have changed in our country, haven't they? Um, We're increasingly becoming a uh, post-Christian country. And it can no longer be assumed that the average person knows these great stories of the Bible. Uh, Now that the kids are back in school and the leaves are changing color, I thought it would be fun if I took all of you guys back to Sunday school. And I thought it would be fun if we looked at some of the great stories and characters of the Bible. And so I've titled this sermon series, Back to School 2017. And um, my hope is that as we look at these stories afresh, that you're going to be encouraged by God's goodness, that you are going to be um, challenged by what takes place um, in these stories, that you'll learn to trust God's work in your life more fully. And so that's my hope for us with this series. Um, the story we're going to start out with is a story uh, about Abraham. Now, this particular story, although Abraham is taught uh, about quite a bit in children's Sunday school, this particular story is not, but it's one of my favorite stories in regards to Abraham. And so uh, I thought, you know what, let's roll with it. Let's do it. Um, I think there's a lot of golden nuggets in this passage for all of us today. So let me pray. And then we are going to explore this story in Genesis 15. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are our God and King. And that we can be victorious over fear and over lies. Um, We're thankful that you're a conquering King. That nothing can withstand and stand up and, and thwart your purposes, your promises. That we share in because of our connection to Christ through faith. We're thankful for your faithfulness to us every second of the day right now as we breathe. We are receiving your faithfulness as we breathe the air in, that you're allowing our, our lungs to breathe in the oxygen we need and to exhale. You're holding it all together as we sit here this morning. We thank you that you are God. And as Ron mentioned, that it's when we become still before you that we can be reminded of that wonderful fact that you are a great God and King who's in control. You are on the throne of this world, and we are grateful for that. Lord, as we look at the story of Abraham and how you interacted with him hundreds and thousands of years ago, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds that we might find encouragement just like Abraham did back in Genesis 15. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... 
promise to turn my mic off when I cough this Sunday. I'll do my best. Your, your uh, ears are probably still bleeding from last Sunday. I don't know what's up with this tickle, but it just continues to plague me. Genesis 15. I am going to uh, read it slowly. Let's just allow the words to just kind of get into our minds and hearts here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Abram Abram was the name before Abraham, so I'm going to just, from here on out, use the name Abraham, okay? So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless in the heir of my house, Elizer of Damascus? is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite to the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between these pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, before we <clears throat> investigate Abraham's crazy encounter with God in this chapter, I want to give you some background information that I think is going to help us understand what's here in Genesis 15. So, at the very tail end of Genesis 11 is when we first hear Abraham's name mentioned. And then in Genesis 12, Abraham has his first encounter with the living God of the universe. And out of nowhere, 
God comes to Abraham and he asks Abraham, hey, I want you to leave your homeland, but not just your homeland. I want you to leave your family as well, but not just your family. I want you to leave your father and go to a land that I'll show you. Now, this was just really not something that happened back in these days. Guys didn't leave their homeland. They didn't leave their family. They didn't leave their father, right? They were there to be the heir, to inherit the property and to carry on the family name. So this was an extremely unusual request given that culture. Now, what was Abraham to do? Why was God asking him to leave his homeland family and father well, God said, because I just I want to take you to this land that I will show you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being Abraham? He doesn't know this God yet. And here Abraham is just asking him to pick up everything and to just start walking to an unspecified destination. Can you imagine? I, I, some of you, this probably excites. Everybody's different when it comes to these sort of things. Some people love the idea of just getting in the car with their spouse and having no plans, not even knowing where they're going. Let's just go as the wind takes us, and we'll figure it out, and we'll, make, we'll find a hotel. And other people, that would like make them go into a panic attack, right? Like, they just, there's just no way they can start out on a journey without knowing the plan from beginning to end and knowing where they're going to stay and where they're going to stop and where they're going to eat and what they're going to do, right? I wonder what Abraham was like, you know? Now, God doesn't specify where Abraham is to go, but he does specify why he is to go. God has this plan to make this Abraham, to make his name great, and to make Abraham into a great nation. So this means God, when in saying that, he's promising Abraham, who is childless at this point, I am going to give you a son, and you're going to have, you're going to end up having many descendants who are going to have a land that they can inhabit so that they can become a great nation. And then God also promises to Abraham, hey, anybody who treats you and the rest of your descendants poorly, I'm going to treat, you know, harshly. And then anybody who blesses you and your descendants, I will bless. And then comes this promise in Genesis 12, 3. God tells Abraham, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is a tremendous promise, right? God is going to utilize Abraham's family to extend blessing to the ends of the earth, to all nations, all people of, of all nations. Wouldn't you love to have uh, God say that to you, that through your family, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed? What an honor, but would you be willing to make the sacrifice, right? Because Abraham, again, he's, he's having to leave land, family, and father to, to see this happen. And it's at this point in the biblical storyline where the nations desperately need blessing. 
At this point in the storyline, already the nations are steeped in sin and they need rescue, they need redeemed, they need saved. They've all rejected God and have been trying to make a name for themselves. And so Abraham is this chosen vehicle that God is going to use to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Abraham has a choice, doesn't he? Abraham has a choice. And thankfully, Abraham chose to respond to God's call positively by going with God into the unknown, by having flashlight faith, right? God basically told Abraham, you'll know what you need to know when you need to know it. I can't help but wonder when I read this account how long Abraham thought that these promises would take to fulfill. When would they come true? Would it be a year that he would have a son? Would it be in five years? Would it be in 10 years? When would he be given this land? Would it be in a couple months? You know? You know, I think that doing what Abraham did is hard for us. I think it's extremely hard for us, even if we're adventurous people. Following God into the unknown, giving up control, letting go of things we cherish in order to obey God. I tend to think that it's easier to believe in God than it is to trust God. Is it easier for you to believe in God than it is to trust God? It can be for me, for sure. We're extremely prone to fear and doubts. And even though Abraham uh, responded to God's call positively in chapter 12, just later in this very same chapter, we find him struggling with fear and doubt. Abraham's just like the rest of us. Uh, Right after Abraham said yes to God, Genesis 12 goes on to explain that there was a famine in the land where Abraham was at, and so he had to take him and his wife and some other people down to Egypt to find relief, and he's afraid because I guess uh, Sarah was a hottie, if you read the uh, scriptures, who's extremely attractive is what the, the scriptures say. So he's, he's freaking out. Hey, if I go to, e- if I go to Egypt and they're going to they're, they're gonna want her, the Pharaoh's going to want my wife. And you know what they do? They kill the husband and take the wife. So what I will do is I will pretend that we're siblings, that she's my sister, and then maybe they'll spare me, right? So he lies. And then here in Genesis 15, we find Abraham fearful, questioning, doubting, and wondering. God still hasn't provided him with the son. I think he had to wait 25 years for the promise of the son to come true. And we feel like we've had to wait long for certain things for God to do. And then um, God hasn't provided him with land yet either. How on earth are they going to, how on earth is Abraham going to become a great nation if he doesn't even have a, a son and an heir and he has no land? What, when is it going to happen? Will it happen? Abraham couldn't help but doubt. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've said yes to God. 
Maybe you've said yes to God and you moved into the area and it's been extremely hard for you to be here. You're not making connections like you thought you would. It's not like home and you're starting to doubt God. Maybe you have followed God's, <clears throat> God's call to change jobs and now you're in the new job and the new job isn't panning out and now you're struggling to trust God. Your initial faith in God and trust in God that was so strong is now wavering. Maybe you've uh, followed Jesus' call to be a disciple and it's way more difficult than you thought it was going to be. And now you're struggling to trust God. We could go on with examples, but like Abraham, after we boldly and confidently trust God by embarking on a path And then when we find that there's difficulty at every turn, it's easy to start doubting, right? Now, you may say at this point, but the New Testament exalts Abraham as a man of faith, as an example of faith. And you're right, it does. But here's, in my humble opinion, opinion, why the scriptures celebrate Abraham as a man of faith. Abraham is considered a great example of faith, not because he never had doubts, not because he never struggled to trust God, not because he was unwavering in belief, but because of how he responded to his doubts. And I think this is key, my brothers and sisters. It was the way that Abraham responded to the doubts and the questions and the uncertainty that allowed his faith to grow. And of course, obviously, God, it's a gift from God. So how did Abraham <clears throat> respond to his doubts? I, hold on a second. Side note, the worst thing about this is that I don't feel until I go to talk and then I have to cough like almost within like immediately. So I don't know how many times I've been on the phone and I've been going to like leave a message. Hi, this is and then it's, you know, this coughing fit and then sorry. So this has happened many, many times uh, in the last three weeks. So I bought vitamin C. I should probably take it and see (laughs) I've literally had it in my on top of my refrigerator for two weeks now it's I haven't taken it I probably should back to Abraham all right so Abraham what does he do with his doubts all right so he says to God how can I know He goes to God, how can I know that these promises are true, that they're going to happen? In other words, God, how can I I know that I can trust you? How can I know that you're going to do what you said you're going to do? Another way of saying this is, I want to believe, but help me with my unbelief. I'm struggling here. I, I, I want to you know, believe your word, but I am having a hard time. Help me, right? Increase my faith. And notice that what God does when Abraham goes to God asking that. Does God belittle Abraham? Does God rebuke Abraham? Does God talk condescendingly to Abraham? No. God 
responds to Abraham in a way to help grow his faith. What he does is he takes Abraham outside and he says, look at the stars in the night sky. Count them. Can you, I bet you Abraham was just like, are you serious, God? Like, really? There's literally thousands upon thousands of stars. He says, count them. And then God says to him, hey, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. And you know what? Your descendants aren't going to come from Elizar, which is probably his servant. They're going to come from your own body. And then when Abraham asked God about the land, well, how can I, how can I know that I can trust you about this land thing? Then something just crazy happens in this chapter. Crazy to us, but not crazy to Abraham. Let me explain, all right? So God has Abraham bring him a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, Abraham, without any other instructions, he knows what to do with these animals. And what he does is he cuts them up. This is probably why it's not taught in children's Sunday school, right? Um, So he cuts them up. In halves, and then he creates every, he cuts them all up except for the birds, by the way. Um, and he creates an aisle with these animals, okay? Uh, so they're on opposite sides of each other, the halves are. How did Abraham know to do this without instructions? Well, Abraham, he lived in a oral culture and not a written culture. And the way that two parties back in his day would make an agreement is by bringing animals, getting together, bringing animals, cutting them up in half, creating an aisle, and then each person in the agreement would walk down the aisle. And the reason they did this is because they were basically saying, if I do not keep up my end of the agreement, may I be cursed and Um, ripped apart and killed like these animals that we're walking through. And so that's how they made agreements. Um, Maybe if we made agreements this way, (laughs) we might take them a little bit more seriously, huh? Right? If we make agreements and contracts. I am going to be helping to officiate a wedding this Friday, and so I thought I might uh, bring some animals, I, a three-year-old heifer, a female goat, a three-year-old ram, a, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, um, and we'll bring them. And, you know, Kristen and Nick, they can walk down the aisle of these cut-up animals. Does anybody know where I can get some rams? That's what I'm still trying to figure out. Any ram farmers in the congregation? Yeah, Los Angeles Rams. There you go. So it's pretty weird, isn't it? But it wasn't weird for Abraham. Like, he would have known exactly what's going on. And he would have fully expected that he was going to have to walk down this aisle of cut-up animals. Because when a lord, a sovereign, a ruler, made a contract or an agreement with a servant or somebody less than them, it was either the lord and the servant walk through the aisle, or it was just the servant. But either way, the servant always had to walk through the cut-up animals. So, 
as the sun is going down, Abraham, he falls into a deep sleep. And as he was sleeping, this tremendous darkness came upon him, an intense horror. And he learned uh, through this time that God was going to his, he learned from God that his descendants were going to be led to a foreign land where they would be afflicted and have to serve for 400 years. But when the 400 years was up, Abraham's descendants would, descendants would come out of the land with great possessions. And then, as Abraham... Um, what a, oh, another thing that Abraham learned is that he was going to die peacefully at an old age. And then something crazy happened, if that wasn't crazy enough. Um, there was a smoking, a smoking oven that appeared in a burning torch that Abraham saw. Now, in the Old Testament, smoke, cloud, fire, these, these were all ways that God's personal presence, his, his kind of glory manifested itself. And so this oven, this torch, they represent God's personal presence. And then something shocking happened next. Abraham watched as the oven in the torch walked down the aisle in between the cut-up animals. God walked down the aisle. And what God was saying to Abraham, he was saying, Abraham, if I do not keep my promise to you to make you into a great nation, to give you a son, to give you descendants, to give you land, may me, God, be cut up, ripped to pieces, cursed like these animals on the ground. And if that wasn't shocking enough that God was willing to make that promise, check out what happened next. And Tim Keller, he does a great job of explaining the significance of all this and how it's connected to the gospel. Let me just read you this quote. Abraham had two shocks. The first shock was that God went through the pieces. But the second shock was that Abraham was never called to go through the pieces himself. The ceremony ended, and we're told in 1518, and therefore God made a covenant with Abraham. But this was unheard of. It was amazing for the Lord to come and walk through the pieces, but for the servant not even to make the oath, Abraham knew what it meant, though he didn't see how it could be. Now check this out. It meant God was making the promise for both of them, He was taking the curse of the covenant on for both of them. And what he was doing was he was saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise, I'll be torn into pieces if you don't. Oh, Abraham, Abraham, God is saying unto all of us, O world, I will bless you no matter what. Even if it means that my immortality must become mortal, even if my glory must be drowned in darkness, even if I have to literally be torn to pieces. And he was, because century later, centuries later, Darkness came down on Mount Calvary, thick darkness. In the midst of the darkness, there was God in the person of Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
and he was literally being torn to pieces. Nails, spears, thorns, why? He was taking on the, the covenant curse. And it's Paul who says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us. I was just talking uh, to the person earlier, actually it was Nikki, and I said I've cried in front of this congregation more times than I care to admit. Just add this to the tally sheet. Um, so Christ redeemed us from the, the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us all through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 4, this is how God can be both just and justifier of those who believe. This is the ultimate blend of law and love. How so? Are the, blessing, are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? Yes. Because on the cross, I love this line, Jesus Christ absolutely filled the conditions of the law so that God could love you absolutely unconditionally. With his perfect life, Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the terms of the covenant and he earned the blessing. But with the sacrificial death, he completely filled, fulfilled the curse of the covenant and that leaves the blessing for you, me, and anyone who lifts the empty hands of faith and asks for it. Jesus Christ fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so that we could be received unconditionally. Do you hear what Keller is saying here? Although God, he created us to love him, trust him, obey him, serve him like Abraham, we don't measure up to the standard. We have broken our relationship to him. We have, we have not kept our obligations to God as our creator. And we deserve to be cursed. We deserve to be killed. We deserve to be cut into pieces. But God sent his son into the world to earn the blessing of the covenant but also to become the curse in our place. And the Bible says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so Jesus on the wooded cross made out of a tree, even though it was in the middle of the day, the, the darkness blotted out the light of the sun and all this darkness, the darkness of our sin, it fell on Jesus and he was cursed and his body was shredded and it was killed. Why? To remove the curse from us. So that in its place, we could have God's blessing upon us that Jesus earned in our stead. When we believe the wonderful truth that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, our failure to love God is transferred to Christ's account and his perfect life, the life that earned the blessing of the covenant is transferred to our account. And this enables um, us not to be punished and to be loved by God absolutely and unconditionally. And this enables us to live without the fear of wondering if we're ever going to fall out of God's good grace, graces. 
So how does this apply to our lives today? Well, hopefully you can see how what was just shared about the gospel immediately applies to us. But also, let me just give you three, three quick things. It's okay to doubt. You need to know that doubting is normal. It's a normal part of the faith journey. Abraham doubted God, and he wasn't the only one. A whole bunch of great Bible characters have doubted God. John the Baptist, he doubted. He wasn't sure that Jesus was really the Messiah. Did Jesus ridicule him? No. Jesus provided John evidence that he truly was who he said he was, the Messiah. And he encouraged John and he complimented John, even saying that there is no, none other greater than John. All the while, Jesus knew that John was doubting. Doubting is normal. I've seen too many Christians go through seasons of doubts and then they add unnecessary additional suffering to their time of doubting by beating themselves up because they're doubting. They see doubt as unchristian or completely opposed to belief. If Abraham and John the Baptist can experience doubt while enjoying you know, God's favor, we can, we can as well. Doubt is normal. Number two, ask God to help you with your doubts. I love the account where Jesus, he encountered a man who had a son that had a spirit inside of him that was rendering him mute and was trying to kill his son, crazy stuff. And the man asked Jesus to heal his son and Jesus replied to the man. He said, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes... And the scripture tells us this. This is the guy's response in Mark 9, 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This man, he's confessing to Jesus that his faith is small like a mustard seed. And he wants Jesus to come and to work in his life to make his faith grow so that he can believe Jesus more firmly. Now, does Jesus... Heal the man's son, or does he say, no, I'm not going to heal your son. You don't have enough faith in me. No, he heals the guy's son, which increases the man's faith. Same thing for Abraham. Did God rebuke Abraham? When Abraham came to God in, in Genesis 15, how can I know? How can I know that I can trust you and that your promises will actually happen? No, God gave proof to Abraham so that Abraham's faith could be increased. And I believe God's willing to do the same for us. When we come to him doubting, when we come to him saying, like, I believe, but help me with my unbelief, God has a way of responding to us over time to increase and grow our faith. I think the first step in, inquiring, in acquiring greater faith is recognizing that our faith isn't what we want it to be. Admitting that our faith is weak. Thirdly, so doubting is part of the Christian journey. It's okay to doubt. Secondly, we need to go to God with our doubts, asking him to help us with them, asking him to show us more and more how we can trust them. And then thirdly, the death of Christ has the power to expel doubts. Now, you know, you may be hearing the story and you, you think in your mind, well, God has never appeared to me in a vision. He, he's never had me cut up animals so that we can walk through them and make an agreement so that I can know that I can trust him. And that is true. But God has done, the, done something 
to prove his trustworthiness and his goodness in that he has, is he has given his only son for you. How do you know God loves you? Look at what he did on the cross. How do you know that he can be trustworthy, that he's trustworthy? Look at what he did on the cross. As God's sacrifice for us becomes more and more real, more and more precious to us, more and more just awe-inspiring, the more faith and trust we're going to have in God. And so I encourage you, like, just... Man, go through the gospel. Uh, read books about it. I mean, just, just wrap your mind. And, uh, just soak your mind in, in the gospel truth and in, in the death of Christ. How did Paul know that he could trust God despite the circumstances that he was in, which were way more difficult than probably any of us in this room will ever experience beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, the threat of death all the time. It was the cross and what Jesus did on it. Paul wrote Romans in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This was Paul's anchor in the storms of life. Paul no matter what was coming into his life, no matter what his circumstances were, his anchor was so attached to this truth that Jesus came and God gave Jesus his only son to him to to meet his greatest need, which was the, the need to be rescued from sin, Satan, and death. Surely, in Christ, God will meet all his lesser needs. Lord, I pray for this congregation that that God, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our trust in you, Jesus. Give us faith that can move mountains here at Abundant Life. Um, in one of the sermons, I can't remember if it was the same sermon I read the quote from, but uh, Tim Keller, he said that uh, the reason why we have all of the problems in our lives is because we do not trust God. And he gave some examples, which I thought were really good. When we're worried... We're not trusting God's wisdom. When we're angry and bitter, we're not trusting God's justice. When we hate ourselves, we're not trusting God's love and grace. The reason that we ever disobey God at all is because we're not trusting that his way really leads to real life. And so... We end up buying the lie that if we trust him, then life is going to be you know, drawn out of us instead of given to us. You know, if, it's the same lie that was given to Adam and Eve in the beginning, that God cannot be trusted. He's holding out on you. To follow him isn't going to lead to the most vibrant, abundant life. And so today, I just encourage you, for those of you that are struggling with doubt, struggling to trust God, don't condemn yourself for the doubt. Accept the doubt, but respond to it by taking it to God, by praying and asking that he would show you, that he would increase your faith. I encourage you also then to look at the cross, study the cross, study what Jesus did. 
learn about it more and more. There are so many different facets to his atoning work on the cross that you can study it for a lifetime. And if you struggle to believe that Jesus really did live and that he really did die and that he did, really did uh, rise from the dead, there's plenty of great historical evidence that supports the truth of that. And I can point you in the right direction. And if you're here and you're doubting and you're struggling, know this. God isn't going to abandon you. He isn't going to give up on you. So know that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so glad that you're patient with us. That you're extremely merciful, bounding in love, and you know that we are weak individuals and that we struggle mightily to really trust you in our life. We, we say we do, but then when it comes to our actions and our decisions and our thought patterns, often they reveal otherwise. Lord, we ask, we plead with you to increase our faith, to increase our trust in you, to give us a faith that can move mountains. Lord, I pray that we would not be shackled by fear, that we would not be shackled by doubt, that we would not be shackled in the many cares and the many problems that we find ourselves in, but that like Paul, we will repeatedly soak ourselves in the truth that if you did not spare your son for our greatest need, surely you're going to pave a way for us to go through the storms of life and not around them. Thank you that we can come to you. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice that allows us to approach your throne of grace in our time of need. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.